All right, well, we're back with Nine Lies About Work. Again, we're coming back with uh, me, I'm Danny, and today I have with me... Austin. And Emerson. Awesome. And we're going to be jumping right back in, uh, starting with chapter number five, and this is the fifth lie. And the fifth lie is this, that people need feedback. And uh, the corresponding truth, uh, maybe Austin, do you want to read that out loud? Yeah, truth number five. People need attention, not feedback, because we all want to be seen for who we are or for who we are at our best. Awesome. All right. So um, we're going to start with a quote um, from location 1628 of the Kindle edition. And this is what it reads. Quote, this tendency of ours to skew our explanation of others' behavior, particularly negative behavior, towards stories about who they are is called the fundamental attribution error. All right. And then we keep on reading on and um, just an interesting fact, but according to this book, by far the best predictor of heart disease, uh, depression and suicide is loneliness. So it's the idea that if you deprive um, people of the attention of other people, they will wither. So let that sink in for a sec. So the, the assumption is that people simply need feedback, all right? So um, I think we want to talk about this in a careful way because um, I don't know about you guys, but w- would you say that feedback is not necessarily an evil or a bad thing that is actually helpful? Yeah, I think so. Um, I'll give you a really current example. This mm-hmm. morning when we got together to do the uh, presentation, the uh, egalitarian right. presentation, mm-hmm. It was my first exposure to that type of project where we had to uh, get together as a group and I didn't know what format or, or what it even looked like right. to stand before a class <clears throat> setting and, and present this stuff. I had no idea. Um, and so as I read my stuff through, or even when I posted it originally to you guys to look over, like mm-hmm. I was really relying on that feedback. Like, have I completely missed the mark here? Right. Um, so yeah, it's, it's nice to have some, some feedback at some point, but it would be devastating to receive feedback that was like, oh man, you completely missed it. You, you suck. Like that would be devastating. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's definitely the way you, you present the feedback as well. That's really important. Right. So it's, it's not only, yeah, again, it's not only what's being said, but how it's said is what you're saying. Yeah. And, and who, who of us would want to hear like, yeah, you suck. Like, so actually, just to speak in that, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. when I would preach, uh, first off, I preached every Monday and then I preached once a month in front of the church. I would always ask my wife, what was it? Like, what, how did I do? Um, what could I do better at? What did I do really good at? And mm-hmm. she would often uh, tell me, Austin, you said too many ums, you did this, you did this. And I actually like, I really wanted that. And I think it's Simon Sinek, uh, who's another popular speaker and stuff. Um, what he, like he, he talks about negative feedback and how he's addicted to negative feedback. Mm-hmm. I think he's the one that mentions it. And it's something that I really identified with. It is something that I always looked for just for self-improvement. Mm-hmm. Right. So you actually found that like within the context of preaching, you actually wanted that specifically because I imagine you probably had a lot of people come up to you and they're like, oh, you're doing great. Like we love. You could get up on stage yeah. and give the worst sermon you've ever given and someone will come up and say something positive. Right, Which yeah. is almost, like, it's so frustrating. Because yeah. you want to you hear what you did poorly. Like, I had I gave the worst sermon ever one time. 
And I had someone come up and be like, you were really passionate. Like, I, I, I really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. I'm like, dude, that was garbage. What right. are you talking about? Right. Like, sure, I was passionate about my garbage, but like, I, I did so poorly with it. Um, however, it ate at me when my wife would give me that negative feedback. Like, mm-hmm. it, it was not something I enjoyed, but it's, it's, it was something I thought I needed to improve. Hmm. Yeah. And, and that kind of brings us into like the lie versus the true thing. Because like, I think there is a degree, like I know this book says like, you know, people need feedback as a lie, which I think maybe at its core that might be true. Although I wonder if part of the feedback thing is tied to the truth of like, maybe feedback is another way that people need attention. Mm-hmm. Because like, for example, like, if you were to ask, like, if Emerson would have asked earlier, like, hey, like, how, how am I doing for the prep for the presentation? Like, it might not only be like, like, here's how you did. Like, you could also like, I, I would imagine in that moment, like Emerson might actually feel like encouraged or affirms just in the fact that he had an interaction with someone. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like, um, I feel like when people are asking for, uh, for you guys, you guys are married. I'm not. But um, when your wife is asking you, how do I look? Like, is she, (laughs) (laughs) like, is she really asking for feedback or do you think it's like, is it more than that? Like, is it an attention thing where she just wants to be affirmed? So I would typically agree with you, (laughs) right? except Sarah's the outlier. She actually (laughs) wants the truth and nothing but the truth. All right. Which is, so she's, she might be an exception. She's an exception. However, I do agree with the whole. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm the other way. When I ask Sarah, how do I look? Like, I'm the girl, she's the guy when it comes to that. When I say <laughs> nice. how I look, I want to be affirmed. I don't care yeah, if I'm yeah. ugly, right? Uh, I want to be told, awesome, you're, you're really hot. Yeah, so I, you really are looking for, like... I'm yeah. looking, but yeah. we've noticed, I mean, we're the exceptions, man. Typically, it goes with the stereotype, right? That's so funny. Yeah, and, like, I think that kind of goes into, like, again, like, the stat of, like, um, people that get heart disease, depression, suicide, like the the best predictor of it is the fact that like attention is deprived of those people. Yeah. So yeah. like it can be like, for example, I would imagine these kinds of people, whether they're seeing specialists or doctors, like they might be giving them feedback of like, this is what your health or like, this is what your, this is what your state of health is looking like. And like, they might be getting feedback in that technical sense, but is that professional actually giving them like just like a, a more human kind of attention that that person really needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, I think this, this is uh it's really cool how the book puts the science behind it. Right. Yeah. Um, and it says that in the brain, the negative attention lights up the brain the same way it would uh, light up in, in a situation of threat. So when you feel mm-hmm. threatened, your brain would react a certain way. And when you receive negative feedback, it, it, actually react the same way right so um it kind of just makes you aware of how you bring things up to people's attention rather than being like yo man you're always late yeah like, yeah what's your deal um you can give them a positive <clears throat> feedback you can start off with that because when the brain receives positive feedback it actually reacts the same way um of the same way your brain would react when it's doing relaxation and digestion mm-hmm. which is and it's more open to receiving um feedback and, and it's more open to to working towards it hmm, so yeah. it's really interesting the way like it's almost like it's giving you a formula that you have to start off with the good attention with the positive attention right, yeah, yeah. to prime their brain because there's actual a science that happens up in there 
Um, and then when you, when you actually prepare the brain, then you can kind of slowly slip something in there that's slightly corrective. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like, um, kind of going back to like you affirm something before you try to correct. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's super interesting that you mentioned the whole, like at a, like a, at a scientific level, or I guess at a molecular level, whatever what's going on is like people actually, if they feel threatened, then they're not going to take that feedback well, or it just won't register. And mm-hmm. that kind of brings us into our, our next point is, um, this quote reads location 1704 quote, the truth then is that people need attention. And when you give it to us in a safe and non-judgmental environment, we will come and stay and play and work. So that's super fascinating because who, who wants to work or stay in an environment where you feel judged all the time? Right. Like if we're talking specifically within a workplace or even within a, a leadership setting. So kind of going back to like how, like let, let's just bring this uh, more at a theoretical level where say you join a company and you join the company piece, like, you know, you, you think they have an awesome mission, but then if say you have like a leader who's like always judging you or always pointing out the things that are bad about you, or even just kind of like in some way demeaning you, will you actually feel safe in that kind of environment? No, probably not. Right. So it's just super interesting that at the scientific level, that's what's going on is that we actually, for whatever reason, we respond best when we feel safe and not quote unquote judged. And again, it, it kind of goes back to what you were saying, Emerson of like, it goes back to the way that you say things to people, not just what you're saying, but how you relate it to them. Right. Like you can say, yeah, you're always showing up late or you can say, Hey, like, um, I noticed that this has been happening. Like, is this, is there a way that we can work on like your, you know, you being punctual for work? Like there's different ways you can say things and relate it to people. Yeah. Yeah. Like as you guys are talking about that, I'm reminded of a quote on page 126. Yeah. Yeah. It says the positive to negative ratio you arrive at is somewhere between three to one and five to one, three to five moments of appreciative attention for every one piece of negative feedback. So it's not saying that negative feedback should be written. No, table, that's right. No, but no. it's saying that you got to make sure that there's at least three to five. And, and they also say, don't worry about the, like the equation there. Like, yeah. Don't, don't worry about the ratio, but try to be positive as often as you can so that when you yeah. give that negative constructive feedback, it will yeah. be welcomed with open arms. Totally. Yeah, right. Because if you know somebody, like if you know that your leader affirms you and cares about you, when they give that negative feedback, it's not going to hurt as much right. as if it's something that they only ever did was negative. Feedback. That's right. And so mm-hmm. like it's, it highlights the point that uh, we have these high priority interruptions where when someone does something bad, we're quick to stop what we're doing and point mm-hmm. it out to them. And so um, the best thing to do is to actually rewire your brain so that you're having those those positive prior, high priority hmm. interruptions mm-hmm. rather yeah. than stopping every time someone does something wrong, then you, you start identifying the stuff that they're doing right. And every time you see it, you retrain your brain to stop what it's doing and affirm that person. Mm-hmm. So that when you do have to do the corrective uh, conversation, then the ratio is already existing, the three to one, yeah. right? And you're doing it naturally and you're, be, and you're actually changing your behaviors and the way you treat people. Hmm. That's good. So um, kind of to bring this a bit more into real time. So, um, we, we've established based off of this chapter that people do need more than feedback. They need attention. But, um, if, 
you guys have been in different leadership and work settings, you know that like it's hard to give everyone the attention that they need, right? Like, like it almost feels like people perhaps could get lost in some of those margins. So um, I actually wanted to read this quote that might address how we can actually put this into practice in real time and then hear what you guys think. It says, start with the present. If your team member approaches you with the problem, he is in it now. So do you guys think that like, this is a realistic way that we can actually give people attention is not so much trying to spend 24 hours a day with someone or like coach them through something. But instead of that, like in the moment when you're with someone, like take advantage of that and be present. Like, do you think that that is like a right, a step in the right direction of giving people the attention they need? Yeah, I think so. Um, it was interesting because when people would get, come to me with something that they're going through, or whatever, mm-hmm. I'd usually be like, Oh, let's book a coffee or like, Oh, I'll think about that. Because usually it was in the ebb and flow of a Sunday morning right, right. time to jump into, but I know that it's incredibly more beneficial to talk with them about it now. Right. Sometimes it doesn't allow it, but it will be most effective because they were brave enough to bring it up to you. Um, or they, they've been troubled with it. And if you can start with the present and even just coach them through something within five minutes and try to try to let them know that first off you're there you're going to help them you're going to encourage them in it um you're going to try to show them a way out Mm -hmm. i think that goes a long way awesome every member of your team yeah no that's good all right so move we're going to move now to line number six um and this is line number six it says that people can reliably rate other people and then Uh, Maybe, Emerson, do you want to read the corresponding truth for line number six? Sure. Uh, People can reliably rate their own experience because that's all we have. Good. So we have rating other people versus rating our own experience, which would be the truth. So um, I want to read uh, this first quote found in location uh, 2035. Um, It reads this. None of the mechanisms and meetings... Not the models, not the consensus sessions, not the exhaustive competencies, not the carefully calibrated rating scales. None of them will ensure that the truth of you emerges in the room because all of them are based on the belief that people can reliably rate other people and they can't. This in all its frustrating simplicity is our sixth lie. What do you guys think of that? So he's claiming that we can't actually reliably rate other people that really it comes down to how we see ourselves. Yeah. I, I actually thought that was, uh, this chapter was brilliant. Yeah. And, uh, one of the analogies they gave were, or actually they used judges, um, that were rating a like triple axle toe kick. Right. Um, but when I was, when I was picturing it in my mind, I'm a big boxing fan. Like I love boxing mm-hmm. and I've been following it since I was a little boy with my dad. So it's like, that's my sport. Um, the only thing I don't like about boxing is, uh, kind of like the politics around the judging Mm -hmm. and, uh, you always find it that no matter how one-sided the fight might be, there's always a possibility of the person who obviously lost, uh, come out victorious because of him having like home field advantage. So yeah. it's almost like the, the judges have pressure from the crowd mm. to steer their decision more towards that fighter like because of the crowd. It's, assuming it's not a knockout. A, assuming it's not a knockout. Yeah. Wow. Assuming yeah. that there's not a knockout. Um, and that's kind of like 
what this chapter says that a lot of uh, our rating comes from our background, our environments, and our wiring in our brain that is completely unique. So we can't trust it. All we can trust is our our own experience on it. Hmm. Yeah. What do you think, Austin? Like that idea of whether we can reliably rate people or not. Yeah. So I found this chapter incredibly frustrating. Yeah, totally. I'm trying to wrap my mind around it. Yeah. Right? It's like, what do you mean we can't reliably rate other people? And like, uh, but for the most part, yeah, I suppose so. Like when, when we're trying to talk about within the context of a workplace and what somebody is good at and what somebody isn't good at, mm-hmm. um, it is really hard to rate someone and what they will do really well at, right? Like take, let's say I, I want to hire somebody new for um, the secretary position, mm-hmm. right? And there's this one person I know and they're super, I don't know. They, they seem very organized and so they're like oh that's going to be a great secretary or assistant or whatever to fill this role you hire the person turns out they actually have no people skills they're just really organized right they actually end up being a terrible assistant right so you think you can rate someone you think you can uh judge someone and be and think it, it'll be accurate but in reality i don't think you can actually do it accurately especially with how they talk about it in this chapter hmm so yeah, no, it's super interesting piece. Not only do they talk about that, but then they point out two fallacies. Um, maybe, Austin, do you want to read off these fallacies? So yeah. we're reading from location 2143. Okay, this is the first crowd-based fallacy that all of us are always smarter than one of us. And the second fallacy is this, that although one person's rating of you might be bad data, if we combine it with six other people's equally bad ratings data, we will magically turn it into good data that somehow the errors will be averaged out. Super mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. Yes. So um, when I was reading that, one of the things that I thought of immediately was um, the other book that we've been reading, Primal Leadership, mm. where he, um, in that book, what they talk about is um, if you have more perspective like he's again, they're they're talking about leadership from an emotional intelligence point of view, where they where they say that if you can get more perspective from the people around you, like especially the people that you work with, or even like people within like a leadership position, that that actually like the more perspectives, the more accurate the view of mm-hmm. who you are, which I found very interesting in contrast to this, because in this book they're saying no, it's 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 not that more views render a more complete image. It's that it's that um, the more views you have, the more falsified that view can be. Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't know. Like, do you guys think? Like, do you guys completely agree with this? Yeah, like, it was. It was. Kind you know of, what I mean? It was kind of difficult for me to fully grasp what they were trying to say because yeah. it almost seemed like it was contradicting. Contradicting. Yeah, yeah. But the the imagery that they gave that was really cool was uh, the one where uh, they were in a small town and they had to guess the weight of the ox. Mm. and uh and for the majority of of the people like they didn't they didn't know what a weight of a of an ox was or the weight of, of a pound is so they they were way off right and uh so an average average ox weighs about 1200 pounds so there was four like four thousand people that were guessing the weight of this ox and um so what happened is that one guy asked the question hey can i look at the ballots I, i'm just curious to see what the data is mm-hmm. and when they looked at the data the exact weight um of the ox was a hundred and don't quote me, it's, I think it was 1,298 mm-hmm. pounds. 
and uh, the average of all the guesses was 1,297. Like they were off mm-hmm. by like a couple pounds or something, which was completely fascinating because it was something that was kind of logical. Uh, everyone knows kind of the weight of a pound. Everyone kind of knows the weight of an ox by looking at it. Um, but they were saying that it would be completely a different result if you had to guess how many atoms the, the ox had. Gotcha. Because no one, that's something completely out of their realm of expertise. Right. Right. Whereas guessing something more um, on an everyday average was easier to do. So I think that's where uh, the contaminated data came in, where if you're not really much of an expert on it, then yeah, the more people you get, the more obscure you're going to have hmm. of an yeah. average on, on data. That's good. Yeah. They gave another really good analogy of the radio frequency. I don't know if you guys remember that, but if, um, if you are trying to, and I don't know anything about radios, but if you're trying to set yourself on a good signal, if there's one thing that interrupts that signal, it distorts the entire thing and it never, it never equalizes. Mm-hmm. And so even one little bit of bad data corrupts the entire thing. Right. Whereas well, what we would typically believe is, oh, well, even if there's a little bit of bad data, it'll average itself out. But what this guy, these authors yeah, yeah. are saying is mm-hmm. actually even a little bit of bad data is going to corrupt everything. Hmm. Um, which is probably true when we think about ourselves as leaders and people and how much we influence each other when talking about something, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree with that radio and the ox analogy. It, it totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so super interesting. So um, I'll, I'll actually share a, a bit of like how, how I kind of bring this into my life. So I feel like... Okay, so I came to BC like almost three to four years ago. And it's funny because like I have like this perception of myself and like even of my own leadership where I'm like, okay, like like perhaps I'm like more analytical and like always like trying to like improve my weaknesses. But it's funny because when I go back to a different environment, like for example, like Ontario where I grew up, like I feel like the whole thing like shifts and like I almost feel like I'm, I'm like, dang, like I'm killing it. Like, like people perceive me in such at least I, I perceive that people perceive my leadership in such a different way, like specifically within the church, you know, circles that I grew up. And so I find this fascinating because like, I feel like part of it, like you were saying, like, uh, not necessarily that people falsify something, but perhaps people filter us in general through like, you know, this is, this is the lens through which Austin or Emerson performs, you know, within a church setting or within a workplace. Like I, I, I don't know if you've ever I felt that before, but I percent agree. This is yeah. something I was talking to my wife about. Yeah. Um, back in Regina, I was uh, a pastor. Mm-hmm. I worked at the bank at one point. People always saw me as a leader. People saw me as someone that had authority, which was weird because I was right. really so young and I wasn't uh, prepared for that. People just always viewed me this way. Mm-hmm. But then once I came here and I started working in retail, everybody right. thinks I'm a nineteen-year-old yeah. kid. And they're always blown away when they find out I'm 23 and they, they're really blown away when I'm married because it's never something they would have thought. Mm-hmm. And I went and told my wife, I'm like, I am very curious as to how people view me here, right. right? Within the context of Immerse, within the context of my job at the mall, right? And it, because how they view me is probably not how I view myself at all. Totally. Right? Mm-hmm. It's probably very different. Yeah. Um, like at, at, at the mall, I was no, somebody mentioned, they're like, Austin, you're always so quiet. Which is something that like, I've never been told. Actually, right, people yeah, in Regina, yeah. I was known as somebody that could talk to anybody about anything. People right. would say that about me, right? Yeah. Two totally polar opposite views. Yeah, yeah. And so it's just interesting that, yeah, you can't actually rate someone or 
Um, it's a bit subjective, isn't it? It is so mm-hmm. subjective. Yeah, yeah. Totally. That's awesome. No, that, that, and I, I think that kind of sums up that chapter well. Like, like, yes, there is a degree to which perhaps, like, we get maybe a more accurate view, but then at the same time, like, you're, you're working with people who read under, other people through a different lens. Like, again, we all have different personality makeups and, like, um, we might consider one person to be quiet where that person might be loud and different. Like, you just, mm-hmm. there's so many factors that go into that kind of thing. So let's go into line number seven now. So we're moving on. Line number seven, um, Emerson, do you want to read what this lie is? Uh, yeah. One second. Line number seven is people have potential. Sweet. And then the corresponding truth would be um, instead that people actually have momentum. So because we all move through the world differently. So... Um, I want to read this first quote. Actually, maybe Austin, do you want to read this? Yeah, it's found in location 2385. Mm-hmm. What, we want, what we want a team leader to be, a person who makes the most of his unique strengths and thereby creates a better future for all of us. All right, so that's super interesting. So um, what the authors are, are, are saying here with um, a team leader is that they're, they're not saying we want a person... Um, who is, again, has like potential, maybe somewhere off in the future, maybe has a little something. Now, what they're actually saying is a leader is someone who makes the most of the strengths that they currently have. And then that's how they um, develop the people around them. So let's actually talk about that for a bit. I think this goes back to the thing of like um, us starting with our weaknesses versus us starting with our strengths as leaders. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, like, let, let's just put a hypothetical situation out there. Like, say, as of tomorrow, um, we're asked to plant a church. Um, maybe, like, would you guys say that, like, perhaps in some people's standards, they might, they might realistically say, yeah, like, you know, Austin has potential. He's worked in youth ministry before, and he's, he's been a pastor. Um, but maybe at this point it's just a potential thing like we're not like we're not sure if austin's quite ready for that like do you think perhaps like people talk about potential as something that we don't quite have just yet like starting perhaps with our weaknesses i'm a little confused by it sure sure i'm sorry Uh, so i I guess I'll, i'll sum it up a bit better so um do you think do you think that when people talk about our potential do you think they're starting with our strengths or with our weaknesses as leaders, like in general? I think when people are talking about doing something big, yeah, yeah. they immediately think, who would be best fit for this? And then quickly, why would they not be best fit for this? Right. So I think they quickly zero in on our weaknesses. Right. Right. Which, which is interesting. Well, I don't, what do you think, Emerson? Yeah. I mean, I, I go back to my um, to the context of an interview. And, right. uh, and when you're, when you're conducting an interview, you're asking various questions that are designed to open somebody up in mm-hmm. real life scenarios. So you have, um, the facts that they're giving you and then you're applying them to real life scenarios, right? So, uh, even the way they're talking, you're really judging them to see if they, they're, um, clear and concise and, and they're, um, they're able to communicate. Mm-hmm. Um, someone who is having trouble communicating is going to have trouble communicating with customers. So you compare it to the real world thing. So right. a person who can check off all these boxes in the real world, this person has potential. 
and you won't actually know until you put them into that scenario. But that's where the potential comes in, where you're like, yeah, potentially uh, in the future, this person can check off all the boxes. Hmm. I yeah, think, so. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, and, and just to wrap it up, I think mm-hmm. so to answer your question, yeah, I yeah. think it's more of a focus on, on their strengths than their weaknesses. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, so you guys are actually kind of saying different things in your experience, mm-hmm. at least. Well, I, yeah. think, I think something that creates a great leader is when they realize what their weaknesses are and don't try to uh, do things within that weakness. So I was at a conference a couple of years ago mm-hmm. and there was this one guy that got up and spoke and he is uh, in the Vancouver area actually. And he mentioned, he's like, I'm a terrible lobby pastor. Mm-hmm. I can get up here, I can preach a sermon. I can do the business aspect of church. But when you come up to me and talk to me in the lobby, I am the worst. And I thought that was really interesting that he recognized that wow. as his weakness and was able to share it. Yeah. Because I resonated with that a bit. Being like, oh, yeah, I, I have a tough time of just spontaneously just talking to people in the lobby sometimes or whatever. Probably not to ex- the extent that he was talking about. But right. But as he recognized that it was a weakness, he would put people in place to make it a strength for them. Right? So he wouldn't try to do it himself. Right. Um, he would avoid it because he'd stick to his strengths, which made him a better leader. I thought that was really interesting. That's super. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So like not only recognizing your weaknesses, but it it almost seems like a team building thing where like when you admit that you can't do something, it almost invites like other people to like pick up with the strength that they have where you don't have them necessarily, or at least as to the same degree that they would. Yeah. And that's probably what a team really is, right? Is you need people that are good at different things because nobody's good at everything. Right. No, that's awesome. So then um, we continue going on. Um, So then uh, the next quote says, your rating of her or him on potential, or more accurately, your guess about how much this person will uh, value, this person will bring to the company in the future will, in all sorts of real ways, create their future. So again, kind of of going back to the potential thing, but specifically, um, the way we view people with potential actually impacts their futures like i i don't know how real mm-hmm. how real you think that that thing is but like i mean we do it all the time like with i don't know when we're choosing friends or like we're choosing you know where we're gonna work or whatever like we assume yeah like that's that's gonna be the thing or the person that makes a better future so i'm gonna put all my my money on them like um i guess what i'm wondering is like with that like do you think we really do in some ways like we kind of we kind of put a ceiling on mm-hmm. people's quote unquote potential because we've already written them off? Absolutely. Like like how do we know that like um you know someone that we deem as like th- they could never do that. What if that's the person that can do that but then because we've said they can't therefore they won't. And that's that's uh, a tension uh, that you live with as an interviewer. Because right. like, I've, I've had it go both ways, no matter how prepared you are for, for an interview. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're in the corporate scene, you actually get um, um, a lot of questions that are based on psychology and, and how to ask them and, and what to ask. And so you have an outline of what you're actually trying, what outcome you're trying to get out of this individual. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's some people who just interview so well. And you're just like, wow, this, this, this guy's legit. Like, right, right. You're hired on the spot. Yeah. And, uh, and then you put them in the, in the real world in, in those scenarios, and they turn out to have really bad habits. Like, they, they are always late. Um, their safety mm-hmm. record's terrible. They don't have wow. safety consciousness. Yeah. So they're, they're causing accidents. 
Um, so even though they, they have a lot of potential in the interview, uh, they don't have a lot of that, that stuff hmm. that really attracted you to them in the, in the real life. And then it gets you thinking, how many people have I, um, have I thrown out? Have I right, discarded yeah, yeah. thinking that these, these people don't have any potential? when really they, they have tons of potential. And I've had that because we've done dual interviews, um, myself and my colleagues, mm-hmm. whereas we'll have completely polarized opinions on someone. And uh, so we'll go with, the, with one person. Mm-hmm. Usually we'll be like, just trust me on this. And we, we give the other person mm-hmm. the benefit of the doubt and we'll, mm-hmm. we run with it. And then that, that person totally proves you wrong. Like they were right. like, wow, I was ready to, to cut this person off. And yeah. it turned out they, they were one of the best employees. So yeah, it goes back to a little bit about the rating that you can't yeah. have an accurate rating on that. Um, and that, that this potential thing is, it's a really difficult thing. Yeah. It's a good little gray. It's, it's huh? true, right? Yeah. No. So actually, as you're reading that, I thought this quote would go great in, um, into it. So we're now looking at location 2484. And uh, this is what the authors say. They say that to say that you have potential means simply that you have the capacity to learn and grow and get better like every other human. That's right. Uh, I thought that was super interesting because um, I don't know if you guys would agree with um, kind of this dichotomy, but it almost seems like when people think of potential and you, you were saying this a bit more a bit more before Emerson, but you were saying that like sometimes you're looking at like the strengths that are there or maybe like perhaps a person's resume of like, oh, like they've done this before. Therefore, maybe they can do this in the future. Mm-hmm. Whereas it almost seems or like what this author is saying um, is that, no, it, it's not necessarily like the resume of what you've done or like mm-hmm. kind of like, I guess the experience perhaps, but more it's, your, it's actually your willingness to grow or to learn. It's like, it could be as simple as you admitting, no, I'm not, I'm not great in the area. I don't have the quote unquote potential. But what if it's just a matter of them being willing to grow and to learn? Like, what if that's better represented as potential? I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I, I think this, um, this one quote in here is really interesting. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Addressing their momentum, which mm-hmm. is the, the truth. Addressing their momentum makes them feel understood. And again, just in hmm, relation yeah. to my life, if somebody just took a look at the youth group that I was mm-hmm. leading... I think they'd probably come away by saying, ah, you know what, this guy doesn't have a ton of potential as a youth pastor. But then if they took a look at the young adults group that I was running, that impressed people across the board. And they're like, man, this guy's got a ton of potential. Right, right. right. And so if you recognize, like addressing their momentum makes them feel understood. Like if somebody addresses the thing that you're doing well at and the area that you actually have momentum in, Hmm. encourages you in that. I think you're going to continue to flourish because everybody has that momentum. It's just not everybody has it in the same place. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And like, yeah, and part of it too is not only that people have it in the like in the same place, but also not everyone has an awareness that it's even there in those certain places. Yeah. Like, what what if you could be that leader that addresses that person's momentum that they're not even aware of until you bring it up. Mm-hmm. Like we all, we all have blind spots as people and as leaders, right? Totally. I was talking to one guy and, um, him and I hadn't seen each other in forever and we're talking and I'm telling him cause he asked, mm-hmm. I told him what I think my strengths are cause we just did this personality quiz. And right. Yeah. He's like, do you know what I think your strength is Austin? I'm like, what? He's like listening. Like I've honestly <laughs> never thought that before. Yeah, yeah. But then when I go back and I look at it, it's like, you know what? Yeah, there like there's a bit of that that people have told me that I'm a good listener, and it actually is something that I try to try to do well at, and something that I was 
probably am more naturally gifted in than I thought I was. And it's because that guy, as more of a leader hmm. role, pointed something out to me that I had never seen before either. Because we do all that those blind spots. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And like, oh, you're going to say something, Martin. Yeah, sorry. I, I, um, Go for it. Speaking to momentum, like, I really wish I had read this chapter and during or before some of my interviews. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah because it's, it's so interesting, like, how you get to discover what momentum is. So uh, if we were to break it down as a formula, the mass times velocity. Mm-hmm. So the questions that would determine your mass are the questions of, like, if I was sitting in front of someone and asking them, like, hey, what is it that you love to do? What is it in your spare time? Rather than asking them uh, applicable questions to right, yeah, so right, you can yeah, actually yeah. determine what, what they're going to be uh, mm-hmm. great at because it's the stuff that they love, right? So that's your mass, the stuff that's going to carry, um, that you're going to carry around with you like your body, mm. right? And then the velocity is um, like, oh, okay, well, what are your skill sets? Uh, what yeah, are your tickets? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what driver license do you have? Class one, class two, Okay, there you go. That explains your velocity because it explains that you're actually doing something and you're moving into that direction, hmm. right? And how quickly you've done it. Okay, you're, 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 you're a young guy and you have all these licenses and tickets and, and all this experience. So that's your velocity. And when you times those two together, that's when you get the momentum. That's and awesome. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was really cool. And I wish I, I had... Uh, experienced this book before I actually connected some of these interviews. No, that's good though. That that's why that's why we're like kind of getting into this stuff. And I, I think I think it's safe to say that within Christian leadership, and probably even within like a church context, like your best bet is to like like affirm what's there in people, but then to empower them and like and the only way you can empower someone in their in their strengths is to know what they are in the first place, which means you know, getting to know them a bit, yeah. like rather than starting with like, do you have this, like, do you have this qualification or whatever? So, um, that's awesome. So now we're going to move into line number eight. Um, we're looking at, uh, work-life balance matters most. That is the lie. Work-life balance matters most. And the corresponding truth, um, I'll get Austin to read this one. Yeah. Truth number eight, love and work matters most because that's what work is really for. Right. So there's our difference. So we have work-life balance versus love and work, or in another way of putting it is loving the work that you do matters most or finding the love in the work. So anyhow, um, so what the author starts doing is they start talking about how um, all of us as human beings, we crave work with meaning and purpose. And I think as Christians, we could probably affirm that even if our jobs don't look so glamorous at times we do crave purpose in some sense like we want to do something with our hands or maybe with um i don't know maybe our knowledge whatever it is and then um it's but then you contrast that to um just the workforce in general so um the authors say this in location uh 2667 they say that the assumption that pervades our working world is that work is bad and life is good and therefore, work-life balance matters most. Now, this is super interesting because I, I think more, I don't know what you guys think. Do you guys think that Christians also think a lot about their work in this way? That work is bad or it's, I don't know, maybe draining? Like, what do you guys think? No, if you're no, being honest. Like, if I'm being honest, um, like, I've seen the contrast between the Christian workspace and mm-hmm. the secular workspace. Okay. And it's... It's, I've seen 
a huge difference between the two, mm-hmm. right? I've seen people be miserable at work in the corporate scene. And then in, in church, you always seem to have like a, like a lighter spirit in the hallways or mm-hmm. in, the, in the communal areas. Okay. And a little bit of that is because like of the love, like you have this, this, this um, common love for Jesus Christ and, and you're, you're actually bringing that into your work. Whereas in my other industry, it's really, it's really easy to find an environment that's toxic because at the end of the day, um, what you're doing is, is the waste industry. You're literally talking trash day in and day out, <laughs> right? Like, there you go. And it, it can yeah, really, yeah. it can really, um, it can really weigh down on you. Like what's the significance of your work? What's, what is there to love? In right. It, right. So I thought it was, it was really cool how, how this kind of broke it down that it's not about balancing work and life. It's, it's really balancing the things that you love and the things that you loathe. Hmm. Yeah. What do you think, Austin? Like if, if you were being honest about like, if you think that work is bad or that life is good, like, do you find yourself falling into that dichotomy? Yes. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, for yeah. Me, um, man, if it, like, I have to love what I do. Yeah. Otherwise, work is bad. Yeah. Otherwise, it's straining. You you think about how much you hate it at home. Then all of a sudden, you're in it. Then you're then you're done your shift for the day. And then you're thinking about how much you hate it again. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you're going to bed and wake me up and doing it all over again. And I think um, in my life, I've fallen into this so many times. However, when I love my job, I totally love my job. Yeah, right? totally. Yeah. It's something that like life is good. Uh, work is good. Everything is good. I enjoy all this. I look forward to it. I love the people I work with. Um, and I think it goes, a, uh, it goes a really far away. And the other thing is, is it's a new concept, right? Like our grandparents did not have this idea that work is, right. they, they did they did work to survive, not work to enjoy it. Whereas right, for yeah. us, we're all about, I mm. want to do something meaningful. I want right. to do something that speaks to my soul, yes. which is a little stupid sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But because there is a bit of sometimes like, like there's this one sign I saw uh, posted on Reddit, which is kind of funny. It's uh, try to find the job that you uh, what, what was it? it? It was basically saying you'll never find the job that you love because it doesn't exist. Right. So right, yeah, get yeah. back to work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is funny because in reality, you're always going to have tough days at work as well. Mm-hmm. But honestly, I, I thought it was so true. But it is a new concept for us that we're privileged with having because most people don't get that. Privilege. Right. Yeah. So then so contrasting that with the truth then being love and work matters most. So Austin, you were saying that like, again, with our parents, grandparents beyond that generation, like they were thinking like, this is what we need to do to survive. So this, this author is saying, and, and we've, we read this in location 2800, that um, the skill of finding love in what you do rather than simply doing what you love leads us. And he, he continues on, but basically he's saying that like, we need to find love in what we do. Do you think our grandparents um, we're thinking beyond survival. Do you think they were actually thinking like, like, yeah, like, I guess I kind of find this satisfying or like somehow completes me. Like, I don't know, maybe for someone who's like a bit OCD, they, they might find cleaning or organizing things like to actually work for them. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I guess my question is like, is this an old fashioned concept or do you think, um, or do you think that it's something that has been more new to our generation? What do you guys think? I, I think 
it goes both ways. Yeah. Right? Like, it is something that is very prevalent in our generation. Right. However, it would have definitely existed back then. Right. But they also had a lot less options. Like, right, um, right. I mean, think of it even just within their dating life. They would have had the girl or whatever girl that was in the town, mm-hmm. right? Those were the people that they could date. Whereas for us, we have people all over the world. Like I was reading about one guy that flew down to Florida to go meet a girl and he lived somewhere else in the States. Like wow. it was an eight hour flight yeah. right? because mm-hmm. these online dating, all of a sudden we have way more options. We have way more mm. opportunity. Right. These yeah. guys way back then, our grandparents, maybe they were more satisfied back then with their job and still loved it. Yeah. With less options. As many options. Oh, man, yeah. That's, that's right? brilliant what you're saying. It's absolutely true because like, there was this ice cream place downtown uh, and it has 200 flavors and you think that that would be so fun. But when you're in there, oh, it is such a hard decision it's like to Netflix. be able to pick. Yeah. Whereas if it was just like a Neapolitan ice cream and you get the three flavors, you know what's up. You're going to go mm. with the chocolate. But this has like chocolate and dark chocolate and chocolate yeah. with banana and mm. there's like 50 flavors with banana chocolate. with chocolate. So now that. you're having a hard time. <laughs> and I know that. The right. Book, yeah. The book says that, um, you know, when you look at people that are really happy in their jobs, like, how do they do it? Like, how did they find the job that suited them the best? And it's not that. It's the fact that they made the job suit them and they found things that they love about the job. And that's the stuff that they focused on. And I think it's there's there's also a, um, a percentage, too. I think it's like find 20 uh, percent of things that you love in the job. And that's that's a that's a good right spot. right yeah i remember reading that mm-hmm. yeah i was telling my wife about that because it was so interesting that uh if you find something like if you find 20 percent of something that you enjoy love doing in your work mm-hmm. you won't hit that burnout like people that fall below that 20 percent. that's right uh if you go above that 20 percent, it actually has no impact that's but right. if you fall below the 20 percent, it actually severely that's super interesting, yeah. percentage point so yeah it was probably chapter eight here was the chapter I enjoyed the most. Mm-hmm. I thought it was very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was very visual too with the red thread and picturing that as the things that you love and it just like stitching everything together. Mm. I thought it was really cool. Yeah, yeah, totally. I wonder too, like I feel like there's two aspects. So like what you just said, like finding that thread that you love because I feel on the one aspect, like when we're able to find something that we love about work or like whatever it is, I think it kind of speaks to even like, um, like how we're, I guess how kind of we're wired, like as people within a workplace or even as leaders, we're like, the fact that we love something shows that there's, I suppose, like a uniqueness there that maybe separates me from Emerson or from you. So like, maybe there's like that aspect of it, but do you think maybe too that like part of why we, part of what makes us want to find love in our work is because if we don't, then we'll just be overwhelmed by the options. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's there's definitely a correlation there. Yeah, like I, I yeah, I I feel like it's hard to separate like 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 you said Austin before, like people back then maybe they were more satisfied and loved what they did because they didn't have the options. But what if us having to find the options, um having to find love in what we do is maybe partly due to like the overwhelming amount of things we can do. Like the fact that we can um tailor jobs to our own makeup. Like, again, that's something foreign to what people were dealing with back then. So maybe I'm just thinking, like, maybe that's part of why we have to find love in the things that we do. Because otherwise, yeah, we'll just be lost in, like, an array of options. Yeah, yeah. when it comes yeah, yeah. to, like, I would always get asked the question, what does God want me to do with my life? Should I be an accountant or should right. I be a, a nurse? Right. And the reality is, is 
I don't think it really matters. Right. Right. It like, what are your giftings? What do you love doing? Try to do something like that. Yeah. yeah. You ask 90% of young adults and youth, they are so overwhelmed by all the career options. And I know one girl, she, she did the entire nursing degree. And what is she doing now? A coffee shop. I know another guy, he's a, he did all his stuff to become a doctor. What's he doing now? He bought a, 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 a business to do flooring, right? Because all of a right, sudden, yeah. th- too many options and didn't find love in what you were doing. And he could have, right? If that was right, the focus. Because right. you only have to find that 20% of love. That's you right. don't have to find 100%, yeah. right? You can still not enjoy a certain coworker or not enjoy a certain aspect of your job mm-hmm. and still love what you do. Hmm. I really appreciated the practical sense of this chapter too, how it's like, you can discover that these things, you can just do one week at a time. Yeah, yeah. You walk around yeah. with a notepad for a week yeah. and then just write your right. columns of the yeah. things that you love and then the mm-hmm. things that you don't love, you know, mm-hmm. you love and loathe. And, and start focusing in, um, on how to, how to implement the things that you love into your daily work life and right. you know, see how far that takes you. It was very practical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It wasn't like, tell me right now, what's 20% yeah. of what you love? Because I wouldn't have an <laughs> yeah. answer. Yeah, yeah, right? totally. But it was like, get a notepad, work on it slowly for the yeah. next few weeks, figure it out. And it, mm-hmm. it's so practical. So yeah, great advice in this chapter. Oh, that's awesome. And then this brings us to our last chapter. So now we're looking at line number nine. And this is probably the most controversial lie. So um, here it goes. Leadership is a thing. Lie number nine. And then uh, truth number nine is? We follow spikes because spikes brings us certainty. Awesome. All right. So obviously a very controversial thing to say that leadership is not even a thing. Yo, <laughs> so totally. let's, let's get into it. So... Um, We're looking at location 3028, and um, this is how it reads. The most important thing you can do to advance your career is to, quote unquote, grow your leadership. Super interesting. Mm. Um, I think right there we can actually, well, I'll read what it says right after. And then it says the final lie that we encounter at work is that leadership is a thing. So let's actually talk about that for a sec. What do you think the authors were trying to get at when they were saying that, um, like, there's no such thing? I think you have to, like, within its context. Yeah, within its context, within of its course. Context, within its context. It's saying, like, there's more to it than just this yeah. leadership quality, right? Like, right. Because they're... Like, this they're, potential yeah, or... Yeah, they're clearly not saying that leaders don't no, exist because no, they no. do. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we, we have to look at it within Oh, yeah, for context. sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're just saying, like, hey, like you don't get known as oh like this person has a lot of joy this person has a lot of happiness this person's tall this person's a leader right like there's more to it than just like this special gene that shows that you are the leader mhm no, that's good so um what so one of the first things that's mentioned so um we're looking at location 3051 and uh the authors bring up two things they say first uh, the ability to lead is rare. And then second, leaders have shortcomings. Um, so uh, I was hoping we could quickly talk about um, what it means um, when, it, when it says the ability to lead is rare. Um, within that context, um, what, what do you guys think he was trying to get at with saying that the ability to lead is rare? Because obviously, as Austin was saying before, he's not saying that leadership 
isn't a thing necessary. Like, isn't not a thing. It's just not, it's not a thing in the way that we think of it. So for example, if, if we're saying the ability to lead is rare, um, perhaps that's within a certain context. Could you guys maybe speak a bit to that? Yeah. I mean, um, it goes down to, again, my experience in management, seeing a good um, person in management opposed to a person who's not so good at management. And, and what that looks like is that um, when you have someone in management that um, has their employees load them, you know there's an mm, issue. Yeah. When yeah. their employees are going and circumventing that manager and going to another manager, that's a huge red flag that that manager is, is definitely doing something wrong. Gotcha. Because now they have more trust in a different manager than their own superior. Hmm. And when you circumvent that manager, it's like the biggest... Right. Yeah. It's the, it's the biggest um, insult to you as a manager, right? Mm-hmm. And so... Um, it also speaks volume to the person that they're trusting, that they're going to, right? And I think that's the biggest thing, like like the trust portion of it. Um, right, right. So, so it's it's not so much of whether whether the ability to lead is rare. It's more of like how you're leading. Like, are people actually following you to the point where they trust you? Yeah. Right. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. Right. And then the second part is, and Emerson, you you address this that leaders do have shortcomings. So I think that's one of the things that um, we, sh- we should talk about a bit is that leaders do have shortcomings. So then where exactly, like what exactly defines a good leader if, you know, if there's certain shortcomings where it'd be like, oh yeah, that person, um, like they, they can't be trusted within this context or or is it maybe more the way that they communicate things? Like, what do you think it meet like what are shortcomings that leaders would be known for having yeah i think first off some of you will know mm-hmm. um craig Grishel, right and uh yes. something that he says he, he has the one of those popular leadership podcasts out there and something that he always says is people would rather follow someone that is real than someone who is always right someone follow someone who's always yeah, yeah. real or right. someone who's always right right and people want to follow authenticity Mm. i think or the people that the if you have a leader in your life you want them to be authentic right and leaders have all sorts of shortcomings some might suck at public speaking some might suck with money some might suck with uh personal boundaries right Mm -hmm. um basically a leader can have any kind of shortcoming you can think of Mm -hmm. is how i would summarize that quickly right yeah no that's good so like it it looks again it looks different for many people but I, I think what you uh what you were mentioning was interesting um that you were saying that one of the shortcomings could be the fact that like you're not authentic with the people around you yeah right because um and we'll kind of get into it a bit but like part of what it means to be a leader means that like people are following you That's it's right. like it's like so if if people are following you like they're not following something that they can't like tangibly see or kind of put into words or into feelings. Like at some point, like, I don't know if you guys would agree with this, but a leader has to be authentic to some degree. Otherwise no one's going to, no one's going to follow what they can't see. Yeah. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So then part of leadership then um, would be that, and actually one of the, I was just thinking of a random picture as we were kind of reading some of these quotes, but um, 
would you guys say that maybe leadership isn't some like because you were saying like people like anyone can be right but that doesn't mean a thing like if how did you put it the way that craig Rochelle put it people would rather follow someone who is always real than someone who is always right right yeah so like you again this comes back to like perhaps like you can say one thing about like you know this is what we value or um this is what we you know believe at this organization but then if people don't actually grasp that in the actual culture that is really there in place maybe they're probably not going to follow you as well mm-hmm. you know in this chapter they use um martin luther king quite a bit right right and how uh um there was one part where they said that um basically martin luther king wasn't even like the best option at that time hmm. but what what martin luther king because he had a lot of short shortcomings himself but what he did was that he checked off a lot of the um the eight aspects um, um of high yeah, yeah. performers right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the ones that he checked off were mostly the the odd number ones at work i clearly understand what's expected for me uh, i'm able to use my strengths every day i know i will rec- uh, be recognized for excellent work um in my work oh no sorry uh, I have a great confidence in my company's future. So mm, what, yeah. what uh, Martin Luther King was, was saying or, or promoting was that during that era, people were uncertain about their future. They didn't know what it was going to look like. Right. And he brought that confidence to them. He brought that, that, that vision to them of what the future was like. And that's what, what created followers for him. Hmm. That's actually amazing that you brought that up because um, our next quote talks exactly about that thing. So um, we're looking at location uh, 3110, and then it's, it, uh, it reads like this. We want to feel part of something bigger than ourselves. So there's that, like, that vision aspect. And then it continues on and says, we follow leaders who connect us to a mission we believe in, who clarify what's expected of us, who surround us with people who define excellence the same way we do, who value us for our strengths, who show us that our teammates will always be there for us, who diligently replay our winning plays, who challenge us to keep getting better and who give us confidence in the future. So when you were talking about Martin Luther King uh, Jr., like I thought that was fascinating. He's like, what Martin Luther King Jr. did as a leader was he gave people a vision. Like Mm -hmm. he was giving them of like, this is what we're going for. But Mm -hmm. even more than that, like he was legitimately authentic in his vision. Like he wasn't... um, again at the time like he wasn't someone that like people were just like yeah like this guy's just like a a random public speaker that you know is good at communicating a vision like people actually believe that he believes what he said mm-hmm. and i think that's just like a practical aspect of like leadership i don't know if you guys would say that maybe one of the primary things about leadership is um communicating vision but with authenticity would you guys say that's maybe like a a big portion of it or at least somewhere in there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, like that might be the spike perhaps. Yeah. And I think Martin Luther did that so well um, because right before he died, Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah, yeah. It was really interesting to talk about it in this book. I was in his final speech mm-hmm. um, and I had to end up going back and li- I listened to it like three or four times after reading this book. Cause I was, yeah. I was like, wow, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in his last speech, he mentions how um, he has seen the promised land. And he might not get there himself, but he knows that it's there and we're going to make it there, even mm. though it won't be him. Yeah. And he was very authentic 
And I don't think people may have truly grasped it. Martin Luther had a lot of death threats and things yeah, like that. And I think he knew the end was coming for him, probably. Um, but it, it's really interesting, just the authenticity there of him unsure if he was going to make it himself. Right. This beautiful vision mm-hmm. of freedom. And yet continued leading them there and i think people really liked that authenticity even though they might not fully grasped it at the time of what he was truly saying all right because he did communicate that to the people around him like he he was unsure yeah yeah that's right and and they talk about ex, um, extremist and how martin luther king was an extremist in in the direction that he was going and then they even compare it, like steve Jobs was a, an extremist in tech and design and uh right yeah right and and that's that's how um, that's that's one of the appeals of Steve Jobs and why he has so many followers in the workplace. Like everyone admires him and, and everything that he's done. Right. He's an extremist, right? Elon right. Musk was an, is an extremist. Yeah. And people admire him and, and they want to follow in his footsteps on mm-hmm. on how efficient he is and, and all the things that he has going on in his life. Right. So, yeah, like th- there was definitely like an extreme aspect to Steve Jobs. And then on the flip side, we can also say, and like this will probably wrap us up, is that... Um, if you actually look at Steve Jobs, like perhaps more with some of like his, because like, I know there's been like a movie done on him. I forget what the movie's called, but like there, like, although people admired him and like, obviously they believed in what he believed in. Um, people also did not like him. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. he, he was a bit of like, a, um, I guess the nice word is like, he just wasn't a nice guy. Um, <laughs> and I think, I think, I think that's how, I think that's how we want to end because there's two different types of leadership. You have someone like Martin Luther King Jr. versus Steve Jobs. Amazing communicators. They yeah. both have vision. Both have things they aspire for. But um, the difference is with people like Martin Luther King Jr., he had people that did love being with him personally, whereas Steve Jobs, like, he ended up having a lot of people that hated him, like including his, fa- including his family. So I think, I think that speaks to perhaps where we want to end on this kind of a note. Um, maybe Emerson, would you like, oh yeah, would you like to add in something quickly? Yeah. Just to end it with that Steve job thing, I think that sums it up in this, in this one phrase, it says, Mm -hmm. we are attracted to the beauty of clarity of great ability, the brief moments of awe, and we ignore everything else. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Clarity, great ability. And then, um, I was, I don't know, maybe Austin, do you want to read this other quote as well? Yeah. 3386. Yeah. Yeah. Leading and following are not abstractions. They're human interactions, human relationships, and their currency is the currency of all human relationships, the currency of emotional bonds of trust and of love. Yeah. So I think that's, I think that really sums up going back from chapter one, all the way to chapter nine is I think the underlying idea of this kind of leadership and of the workplace specifically is that, People stick around in a workplace because of the team, of the leaders themselves as people. Mm-hmm. And perhaps that's, that's what we can say about, again, that whole, the, the fact that like human relationships and interactions, like that is kind of the thing that ties people together and probably makes or breaks their experience in the workplace or working with leaders. Totally. So um, that concludes our podcast for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, You can stream everywhere where podcasts are streamed. Um, Hope you guys have a great day. Bye now.